Let's pray together. Great, sovereign, and majestic Lord. I'm your son, and I stand before you on behalf of your people, not to preach my message, but to preach your word. And I need your spirit. In fact, we all pray that because we all know that we need your spirit. If you don't come, we're not helped. We're desperate for your spirit. And so, God, take what is so pitiful, what is so poor, and do great things through it. How, how is God, how is it possible for you to get glory from an act that seems so manifestly human? Our hope is that it's not manifestly human, but that it's manifestly spiritual and divine and supernatural. So come and do that, and we'll all be helped. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Asaph wrote Psalm 73, and in it he wrestles with why the wicked prosper. But I think if uh, if Asaph were living today, I think this right here would anger him. You can't see this in the back. I realize you can't see this. It says Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood. I think this would anger Asaph, really anger him. Planned Parenthood is an organization that was started in 1916 by an outspoken racist by the name of Margaret Sanger. And her plan was called euphemistically eugenics. The method of eugenics was actually to implement birth control and abortion among minorities, especially blacks. Just as a historical side note, A highly influential admirer of Margaret Sanger was Adolf Hitler, and he was the most effective practitioner of eugenics ever. Anyway, Planned Parenthood is still a racist organization. It still targets minorities, and as far as I know, they still haven't repented of the historical beginnings. And the fact is, they are an industry, they're a part of an industry that is putting to death millions of babies, and most of them are black. In fact, since 1973, over 10 million black babies have been murdered through Planned Parenthood. Folks, only racism can rejoice in a statistic like that. And I agree with John Piper, who said one time, my prayer and my cry is that African-American Christians would lead this country to a place where abortion becomes just as unthinkable as slavery. But this is the world we live in, and it's a world in which mothers and fathers and children suffer while tyrants prosper. Consider also another example Consider 
Motilal Das, a Bangladeshi pastor living in Dhaka, Bangladesh. Um, He received multiple death threats from local Muslims for preaching the gospel. Despite these threats, here's what he said, I continued evangelical and pastoral activities with prayer. Sounds like a faithful man. He's going to press forward. Now, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think it would be safe to say that Doss would rather have been killed, tortured, or suffered the loss of limbs before experiencing what God called him to endure for the sake of the gospel. Because after the last set of threats came through, a group of Muslim villagers abducted his 13-year-old daughter, Elina, and raped her and left her unconscious in front of his house. The world we live in is a world in which the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. And this is the kind of stuff that just worked ASAP over in Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is a classic psalm that deals with the problem of suffering, but it doesn't struggle so much with the presence of suffering, but with who suffers and who doesn't. In many ways, Psalm 73 is like the book of Job in that it deals with the profound shortcomings of conventional wisdom, which says the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. It deals with that. Psalm 73 is a lament song. It is, it's autobiographical. In fact, it's painfully personal. When you read it, you can feel the emotion of Asaph. It resonates with the people of God. But Psalm 73 has some really important lessons to teach us about what to do when the Christian life doesn't make sense and you are tempted to disparage of life itself. In fact, ironically enough, it teaches us how to find joy in the midst of deep pain and disillusionment. And even though Asaph will not come up with a categorical solution for the problem of suffering, uh, his faith will nevertheless be rescued and his heart healed. And God salvages Asaph's faith. That's what this is about. It's a victory psalm of God rescuing a broken guy. He rescues him, and God rescues Asaph when he stops looking at the world, but instead starts looking at God. In fact, it's when he gets out of the world and he gets to church that he starts getting some help because this guy's really messed up. Now, Asaph is responsible for Psalm 73 through 83. Uh, Asaph was a Levite, uh, appointed by David to lead the worship music for the people of God. In fact, in 1 Chronicles 15, he is mentioned as one who was called to raise the sounds of joy. And in Psalm 73, believe it or not, Asaph raises the sound of joy. It just takes him a while to get there. And it's beautiful that it does because, in fact, I'm glad it takes a while because it just goes to show that the deepest, purest expressions of joy are experienced in the midst of suffering. Psalm 73 shows us that joy is still possible in the midst of a world where pastors' daughters are raped. And abortion clinics are built and messy divorces take place. And so one of the lessons we learn from Psalm 73 
is that someday all injustice will be brought to justice. And if you don't get that, then you will be seduced into thinking that the wicked have it better and your envy of the wicked will cause you to fall away from the living God. This is what this psalm is about. A man whose heart was seduced by his envy of the wicked, a man who almost, almost fell away from God, a man who limped into the sanctuary and was rescued by God. This is street level. Two points this morning. The faith-destroying power of envy and the faith-restoring power of the sanctuary. The faith-destroying power of envy and the faith-restoring power of the sanctuary. First, the faith-destroying power of envy. This psalm begins on a very good note for which we are really thankful because it doesn't continue that way. There's a proclamation in verse 1. It's Asaph's confession of faith. He says, truly, God is good to Israel. Now, in one sense, this verse ends up being the summary for the whole psalm. Um, And and so Asaph comes right out of the chute with a a proclamation about God's goodness. In fact, what's happening here is that Asaph is actually starting with his conclusion. It's like one of those movies, you know, where it starts with kind of the final scene. And then that goes away, and then the rest of the movie is an unpacking of how you got to the final scene. Now, to be honest with you, I don't really like that kind of a beginning. (laughs) But in Psalm 73, it's brilliant. It's beautiful how it happens. (laughs) Asaph gives the conclusion right up front. Truly, God is good to Israel. And in that proclamation, Asaph is saying something true about God. And God's goodness is the drum line of the Bible, page after page of Scripture reverberates with the beat of God's goodness. I mean, if you're living in this world and you look around, you can see God's goodness. But it reverberates powerfully in Scripture, page after page of Scripture. But have you ever thought about what it means to say God is good? I mean, it's way different than saying, man, these potatoes are good. It's way different than that. Saying God is good is a statement about his moral quality. And since God is the final standard of good, that means that everything he is and does is worthy of approval. God's goodness means that he acts on behalf behalf of others for their good and for their sake. So it's crucial that Asaph begins this way because he's about to explain what happens when you lose sight of that truth. And that's what verses 2 through 15 are about. What happens when you lose sight of the truth that God is not, that God is good? I mean, is that relevant to anybody in this room this morning? Is this relevant to you? Anyone tempted to lose sight of the truth that God is good? I know there's people there. I, I, I can see your faces who potentially could be in a phase of life where you are beginning to question, is God good? Is he really good? What happens when life circumstances are screaming in your ear, God is not good? All kinds of disappointing, disheartening, and difficult things will happen to us throughout life. 
And the temptation will be to judge the goodness of God on the basis of our fallen understanding and earthly circumstances. Which is a massive mistake. Because if the circumstances are bad, then we conclude that God is not good. But Asaph teaches us that no matter what happens, we can always say God is good. God is for us. In fact, one Old Testament scholar says that when speaking about the goodness of God, God not only declares himself to be a covenant keeper and a sovereign ruler, but God declares himself to be in a covenant friendship with you. God, when he binds himself to you, he does it not only as your ruler and master, but as your friend. And it's good to remember that about God and what he's promised to do for us. Because as one author put it, when suffering came, you've got to cling to something. So when suffering came, Job clung to God's omniscience. Jeremiah clung to God's justice. Habakkuk clung to God's holiness. And Asaph clung to God's goodness. You've got to cling to something. You've got to have some kind of truth that you're standing on. Otherwise, you're going to crumble. Your faith will crumble. You will absolutely crumble. Look around at other Christians who have crumbled. It happens. Now, that's Asaph's conclusion. God is good to Israel. That's the conviction he came to, listen, after his struggle. When his trial ended and his faith was restored, he concludes, truly, God is good. But Asaph didn't start there. He started in a place of struggle, and I'm glad he did. Because you know why? Because I can identify with him. I can, you can identify with him. And, you know, sometimes you read the Bible, and you just feel like these guys are so far above us. They're just so spiritual, and they're just so godly, and they're just so far above us. It's almost like you can't even identify with them. I mean, if, if all you did was read verses 25 and 26, when Asaph says, Whom have I in heaven but you, and there's nothing on earth I desire beside you, you might be prone to be, become really depressed. Nothing I desire on earth beside you. I mean, you, you might want to look at Asaph and say, Where are you from, man? What planet are you from? I mean, have you been out lately? Have you looked around and seen that there's actually some pretty nice stuff out there? I mean, how can Asaph talk like this? See, you'd be tempted to conclude that. You'd be tempted to think he's so spiritual. But I have good news for you. Asaph doesn't start there. He's like you and he's like me. He starts in a place of struggle. Look where he starts, verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. The but, don't anybody go out this week and get a but ask for me t-shirt. Because that's not the way you want to start. That's not the kind of advertisement you want to have. This is his confession. Asaph is confessing his struggle and it's brutal. He's saying in these verses, I actually came close to abandoning my faith. That's what he's saying. The New English translation says, my feet almost slid out from under me. Asaph is confessing that something had come into his life 
Something that was so powerful, so enticing, and so destructive that he nearly fell away from God. You see, Asaph has a problem, and it's in verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph has an envy problem. And it was destroying him. He was envious of the wicked. And specifically, look at the text. He was envious of their prosperity. Look how he describes prosperity in verse 4. They have no pain. Their bodies are fat and sleek. And by the way, that's a compliment. Fat. That just means that they're well fed and they look good. They have food to eat. They're not sitting in a slum somewhere trying to find their next meal. They're healthy. Verse 5, they don't suffer any trouble like the rest of men. Verse 6, you can just hear, this is irking ASAP. Verse 6, they're distressed with pride. They're dressed with pride and arrogance. They're cocky and showy. They think they're bulletproof. Verse 7, they're driven by greed. The more they have, guess what? The more they want. Verse 8, they're oppressive and blasphemous. They get what they get by intimidation and fear and threats. Verse 9, they victimize others and blaspheme God in heaven. They beguile people. They inflict further punishment on the righteous. Listen, they pound God's people again and again until verse 10, as it says in the Hebrew in verse 10, they, the godly are drowned of their very last tears. They are brutalizing God's people. Verse 11, they live a life of practical atheism, functional atheism. They live a life that says God doesn't see. God doesn't care. God is irrelevant. That's how they live their life. And therefore, since God doesn't see and God doesn't care, I can live however I darn well want to live. That's how these guys are. And Asaph looks at these people who are absolutely rotten to the core, and he says, they are always, verse 12, this is summary, they are always at ease and increase in riches. This guy is angry. And so he says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And by the way, that, pros- that word prosperity in Hebrew is the word shalom. Asaph says he was envious of the arrogant when he saw the shalom of the wicked. And if you know anything about the word shalom, you know that the wicked shouldn't have it. That's not a word for the wicked to have. The word shalom describes wholeness, health, peace, welfare, safety, soundness, tranquility, fullness, rest, harmony, and the absence of pain. Peace. And Asaph is looking at the wicked and saying, that's not just. They're getting what the righteous deserve. Even the Bible says so. Isaiah 57, 21. There's no peace for the wicked. What happened to that text? So Asaph is scratching his head. And he's troubled not so much with the fact that bad things are happening to good people but the fact that good things are happening to bad people. 
Asaph is he's struggling. Why do the wicked have shalom? It's not right. And don't you struggle with that this morning? Don't you struggle with this this morning? Don't you look around sometimes and wonder, why are the wicked so peaceful? Why are they prospering? Why does God bless them? And you just want to say, God, what are you doing? It's the righteous that should be experiencing shalom, not the wicked. And Asaph becomes jealous of those who had all the blessings but didn't do anything right. And so he began to question the justice. Listen, he began to question the justice and the goodness of God. Jealousy, here's what we learned. Jealousy rots the heart of the worshiper. And that's what's happening to Asaph. His heart is rotting. And I don't don't blame him in one sense because you can identify with his pain. I'm just saying the consequences are bad. Now, understand this. In Psalm 73, it's not God who's on trial. It's Asaph. It's not God's justice who's on trial. It's Asaph's faith. This psalm shows us how easy it is for a heart to be seduced by the world. And Asaph is experiencing a crisis of faith. And here's the thing. If it can happen to Asaph, it can happen to you. This, this is a man who's appointed by God to lead his people in worship. And he says, I almost fell because my heart became jealous when I looked at the world. Friends, I don't care if you've walked with God for just two years or for your whole life. None of us in this room is exempt from experiencing a crisis of faith. No one. The basic lesson is we're not as strong as we think we are. What are you going to do when things aren't as they're supposed to be? This is how we think. The righteous aren't supposed to lose their jobs. The, The righteous aren't supposed to lose their homes. The righteous aren't supposed to get cancer. And have crippled children. The righteous aren't supposed to lose their kids to tragic accidents. Isn't that how you think? You're no different than Asaph. You reason just like him. I reason just like him. So what makes you think that you'll respond differently when suffering comes to your life? Proverbial wisdom, conventional wisdom says the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. That's what conventional wisdom says. That's general wisdom, and it's generally true. And there's Bible passages to back that up as well. But the biblical picture, friends, is broader than that. It's broader than that. The biblical picture is broader than that and incorporates, listen, this is so important, an equally important truth, listen, that in life, sometimes the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. 
Psalm 73 teaches that crystal clear. And it's another reason on top of a thousand why the prosperity gospel is a joke. Actually, it's not a joke. It's serious. Because if you believe that the righteous don't suffer, then you go ahead and prepare yourself for a major crisis of faith when suffering comes. Because when the cancer comes, you will either lie to yourself and say it's not cancer, or you'll blame it on the devil and tell everyone that God has already healed you of it when you are wasting away and make a mockery of the gospel. Can God heal you? Yes. Does God delight to heal? Yes. Does he want to heal often? Yes. Can he heal? Yes. Does he heal in this life? Yes. And we pray for it and we ask for it and we long for it and we believe in a God who can take cancer and speak it out of existence. But listen, do not promise yourself something in this life which God has not guaranteed you until the next. Someday you will have it. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name, who forgives us of all of our iniquities, who heals us of all of our diseases, including the person who's in the casket. Because the person who's in the casket who believed in Jesus is going to get a new body someday. And they'll be raised from the dead. Healing will happen. It may not happen in this life. It may not come in this life. But listen, it will come in heaven. So Asaph's perspective is distorted here. He needs to be rescued. In fact, he's on the brink of, of, of losing his faith. Look at verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. You say, well, that's stupid. (laughs) He's ready to throw in the towel? Just like that? I thought this guy was a worship leader. I thought he was like pretty high up in sort of Israel's church structure. Well, before we take Asaph's struggle too lightly, (laughs) we need to remember that to him it did seem like a complete waste. That's how he felt. Whether it's right or not, that's how he felt. And he's entitled to think that. It may not be right, but that's how he thinks. He's experiencing a crisis of faith. He's saying, I serve God for nothing, and my circumstances prove it. Look at my life. So he's about to leave God. Oh, but I'm so thankful for verse 15. Because thankfully, we see a glimmer of hope here. Look at 15, the Holman Christian Standard Bible it's a much better translation here. It says this, if I had decided to say these things out loud, I would have betrayed your people. That's a great translation. Let me commend the Holman Christian Standard Bible as a faithful translation, as well as the New English translation, which says, if I had publicized my thoughts, I would have betrayed your loyal followers. That's helpful. It's really helpful and really accurate description of what asaph is going through so he makes a wise decision in not verbalizing his unbelief before god's people you know what that is that's faith 
That's a flicker of faith in Asaph's heart. It's a tiny little flicker. He still believes God because he doesn't want to hurt God's people. It may be a weak faith, but folks, it's still there. His faith is still there. And sometimes our faith is reduced to a flicker. Does anybody have a flicker this morning? Anybody just have a flicker? You've been praying for decades for your kids and they haven't come to Christ and your flame is reduced to a flicker. Anybody have a flicker this morning? Take hope. It's still flickering. I know it's confusing. I know life is hard and often it makes no sense. You're trying to do the right thing. You're trying to live for God, but you just keep getting hit. Some, some of it's your sin and some of it's the sin of others. Maybe you're trying to recover from a divorce or a, or a sloppy, adulterous affair. Or, or maybe you're trying to recover from an abusive situation. Or you're trying to climb out of the pit of guilt that you've been in ever since you had that abortion. But you're broken and you're tired and you're confused and you're drained. And you say, I thought the Christian life would be easier than this. Look at my neighbors. They have it all together. They're happy. Look at all their stuff. What's the point of life? Friends, listen to me. Please listen to me. Hear me say this, Christian. I know the grass looks greener on the other side, but don't go over the fence. You will be destroyed on the other side of the fence. Hold on to your flicker and say, God, blow this into a flame. May God be blowing flickers into flames this morning. Asaph's envy of the wicked was rotting his heart. He's on the brink of destruction, and as, he, and as he stares at what the world has, he just dwindles and dwindles and dwindles. You know what Asaph's mistake is? Asaph is worshiping the wrong things. Asaph is an idolater. That's what Asaph is. He's having his quiet time at the neighborhood pool. He's listening to the beat of the world through his earbuds. He's sitting in front of the TV getting his entertainment. He's spending his alone time listening to himself. Asaph's looking at his neighbor's wife. He's looking at his neighbor's car. He's looking at his neighbor's house. He's looking at his neighbor's grass. He's looking at his neighbor's whole life. That seems so great. That's the problem with Asaph. Asaph just thinks... Everybody's got it except me. He's meditating on those things. And you know what it's doing? It's eating his flesh away like cancer. It's destroying him. It's no wonder his view on God and life was so distorted. He could only see one thing. He could only see how the wicked have it all. That's all he could see. The wicked just have everything. They're just living this great life. That's all he could see. He was so short-sighted. And maybe that's what you're thinking this morning. Maybe you're thinking, maybe you're beginning to lose perspective. Let me just tell you as a, as, a, as a pastoral, loving, kind remark, turn off the TV. Turn off the music that's beating in your ears. Open up the book of God and get into it. And I'll say this to the youth. Listen, stop spending so much time on Facebook and get your face in the book. Stop spending so much time texting and getting the text. Get with God. People have got all of us adults, pastors, pastoral students. 
Get with God. Get some perspective. We've got to have perspective. God, give us perspective. Oh, may God come and give us perspective. So the faith restoring power of the sanctuary. This is what happens. So here's what happens. This is what Asaph did. Asaph, verse 16, he went ahead and he confessed his confusion and frustration. Here's what you should do. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Start there. Start right there. Cry out to God and tell him I am confused and weary. That's a great start. Don't stop there. Don't stop there. After you confess your confusion and troubled heart, do what Asaph did and get your backside to church. Get into church. Verse 17, Asaph went into the sanctuary of God. Oh, how I love God's church. How I love it. Where else do you hear messages of truth like this? The world screams lies at you all week. Do you think you're strong enough to withstand the lies and allurements and trappings of this world without God's sanctuary? How foolish of us. How absolutely foolish of us to assume that. Asaph was not strong enough. He almost fell, and he's a worship leader. I mean, this dude was at church all the time, and he almost fell. He struggled. But what did he do? He limped his broken, messed up, misguided, envious heart back to church, thinking it's just going to be the same old thing the next Sunday. And God showed up and changed him. He went to the sanctuary of God. But what if he would have stayed home? What if he would have sat there in front of some life-sapping television? Friends, how dangerous is it to lean on our own understanding when we're in the throes of doubt? When you begin to lean on your own wisdom, when you begin to lean on your own frame of reference, on your own knowledge, and on your own experience, there is nothing good that can come from that. (laughs) Listen, when we're in seasons of despair, there is nothing good that can come from shutting ourselves up with ourselves to listen to ourselves. Nothing. That's miserable. That's not who you want to be with. You don't want to be with yourself when you're depressed because you're just going to depress yourself. That's not who you want to be with. You need to be with God's people, not under your covers, listening to yourself moan and complain and murmur. Throw off the covers. Get out of bed and get to church and watch God blow up your self-centered universe with all of its piddly little concerns. I'm not trivializing pain. You understand what I mean? That's what, that's what he did for Asaph. Somehow, someway, through prayer, singing, or preaching, God showed up to Asaph and spoke truth to him. He reminded him that all those words he was writing and singing in his songs are actually true. He, and God meant to be... He, He just spoke to Asaph, and Asaph just remembered, God is meant to be the center of my universe. That's the point of my life. And he began to realize that. He began to be reminded of that, and God began to realign Asaph's faith and Asaph's emotions. Listen, God spoke to Asaph. Asaph went to the sanctuary of God, and God 
absolutely gave him a paradigm shift. We just throw that word out too much because paradigm shift means to take all that you know and replace it with something else. I mean, it's almost that radical. And that's literally kind of what happened to Asaph. He just goes from this to this. He has a massive shift here. God showed him reality that, here's what he did. God showed him that this is reality in here, in this place. This is reality, not out there. See, out there, people act like God doesn't exist. Out there, people act like God doesn't know. Out there, people act like God doesn't care. Out there, people act like God is irrelevant and doesn't matter. You want real? Do you want real? Then get into the house of God. That's where real comes. Where else are you going to get it? Rush Limbaugh? Is he going to give you real? You want reality? You'll get it when you're with the people of God, hovered around the word of God, soaked in the spirit of God. That's where you'll get it. And Asaph went into the house of God and got a dose of reality. What what, what did he see? What was the reality that he got? Did Asaph go into the sanctuary and discern that God is love? Is that what happened? (laughs) No. Asaph says, I went into the house of God and I got some eschatology. That's what he says. Look, I discerned, verse 17, I discerned the end of the wicked. That's eschatology. Eschatology salvaged Asaph's faith. And, and, and by eschatology, I don't mean horns and dragons and calendar dates from Harold Camping. I mean, he understood that there's a God of justice who's going to bring justice to injustice. Who's going to bring an end and a demise to the wicked. He saw that there's a God of justice who's going to bring tyrants and people that oppress God's people to justice. And it was his confidence in that. So he got to the point where he said, I don't have to worry about it. God's got this thing. He doesn't need my help. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Asaph can sit down and he can rest and not worry about what those people are doing because he knows God's got them under control. They may be oppressing God's people now, but someday God is going to come after them and their day in court is going to happen. He saw that someday the wicked will be destroyed. That's verses 18 through 20. That's what it's all about. The wicked are here today. They're gone tomorrow. They're like shaft that's blown in the wind. Their life of prosperity is a life of deception. 18 through 20 really is all about this. Asaph comes to the conclusion that their happy, pleasure-filled life is ultimately an illusion. It's illusory. That's why it says phantom. They just disappear. It's an illusion. They're just living a, a false dream. You know why? Because there's an end. There's a destiny. They may look healthy and wealthy and secure now, but they're walking on a slippery slope. And the minute they slip, guess what? They fall into the hands of justice. They may look happy now, but Asaph comes to the conclusion, payday someday. When God wakes up, when he rouses himself to judge, 
He will be a consuming fire to them, and there will be nowhere for them to run. So Asaph learned something about the wicked. But the sanctuary experience also teaches him something about himself. Verses 21 and 22, we see Asaph's painful confession of wrong thinking. Where, where did he go to see the state, of his, the state of his heart? Did he go to the golf course to discern that? No. He discovered his heart in the sanctuary. And when his heart was revealed for what it is, it brought conviction to him. It stung him. It hurt. Look at the language in verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. See, Asaph's coming under conviction. And the word he uses to describe his heart, this word embittered, is the word for vinegar. He owns his sin before God, and he says his heart was sour. It had become embittered to God. He was self-absorbed in his, and in his self-absorption, he became ignorant like a beast. Like he started losing his mind. Like Nebuchadnezzar, you remember that story of King Nebuchadnezzar? Like it's like Asaph is starting to lose his mind. He's become so ingrown and so selfish and so inwardly bent that he just starts, he starts going mad. Like almost clinically. Now this could be translated, I was like a monster before God. And how often do people make foolish mistakes and decisions that have life-altering consequences because their hearts were all out of whack? Friends, we do that. See, the state of your heart is crucial. If your heart's out of whack, you're not going to think straight. And if you don't think straight, you're going to make really bad decisions. So what's the solution? Just think better? You know, we say that to our kids. You know, use your brain. That's true. But sometimes it's not a brain issue. It's a heart issue. The heart's behind that. We've got to get after the heart. So Asaph comes to this confession. He says, I was like a beast before God. I let all this stuff get to me, and I became so ugly inside. But in that context, isn't verse 23 so precious? Asaph says, it's just almost strange. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. Look at that gospel verse right there. Is that soaked in gospel or what? Now, there's something so beautiful about this verse because Asaph just confessed he was like a monster before God. We're like monsters before God. And yet, what do we see God doing? We see God taking Asaph by the hand. And that what's so remarkable about that language is that back in verse 2, Asaph said, My feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why did Asaph never lose his footing? Was it because deep down inside he was really good? He's a good person? I don't think so. It was because Asaph had come to the realization of verse 23, God, I am continually with you. 
even when it doesn't seem like it, even when my feet slip, even when I think I've served you for nothing, I'm continually with you. He says, I am continually with you. Why? Because God, you have taken hold of my right hand. You see what he's saying? Friends, we're standing today because God's holding us. And he's committed to you forever. And so verse 25, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you receive me to glory. Is that awesome or what? That's, that's perseverance of the saints. That's preservation of the saints. That's God saying, no matter what happens, if your feet slip, if your heart fails, if your flesh gets weak, if you really mess up and do some stupid stuff, I got your hand and I'm going to walk with you to the end. And you know what? I'm going to receive you into glory. God loves us from start to finish. We learn this from Psalm 73. See, at first Asaph thought he was slipping and the wicked were secure. But now Asaph has learned that it's the wicked who are slipping and he is secure. And so he just overflows with praise the rest of the chapter. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He overflows with praise. And in verse 28, he determines, I'm going to tell everyone about this goodness. Verse 28, I'm going to, Asaph kept quiet. You remember when he said he was struggling and, and he, he did not want to expose his unbelief before the church? Remember that? He kept silent. But in verse 28, he's speaking again. What's happened to the guy? He's gone through a transformation. Asaph kept quiet when he was struggling with doubt, but now that God has lifted him up and set his feet on a rock, he's going to preach good news. It's as if he says, I'm absolutely going to tell everybody about God's goodness. I'm I'm not going to hold back because God truly has been good to me. I will make a fool of myself telling how great and good God is. I'm not ashamed. I'm not afraid. I'm not worried. I'm going to head right out the door of this church, and I'm going to walk out and start proclaiming that God is good. Do you guys feel that God is good? Do you believe that God is good to you? If you believe that, then get out of the pew and preach. Preach it. You say, I'm scared, Pastor Don, that I'm nervous. I don't want to. I'm afraid that if you're afraid, the, the, anecdote is, the, the, the antidote is not is not just, hey, just be bolder. The antidote is go to the word of God and discern how good God's been to you. Because if you really understand how good God has been to you, you will burst with praise and you cannot help but speak it. God, make us those kind of people that are so intoxicated with how good God is to us. May God declare that to us, show us that. So there it is. Psalm 73, a man whose heart was seduced by envy 
a man who almost fell away. A man who limped into the sanctuary and was rescued by God. See, his problem was the fact that the righteous were suffering and the wicked had it. But you know what? His problem was his solution. Because if there was ever a man who deserved to prosper and not suffer, it was Jesus Christ. Asaph's struggle with why the righteous suffer was resolved by a righteous man who suffered. So aren't you glad the righteous suffer? Without the suffering of Christ, we would have no hope. Jesus didn't have a prosperity gospel. Jesus suffered. But Christ suffered, and Asaph's crisis of faith is resolved. And make note of this. Asaph didn't praise God because God cleared the world of bad people. No. He praises God because he has a new perspective on life. God is his treasure, not stuff. Following Christ is not about what we get, but who we get. What's bursting forth from Asaph's heart is the realization that he gets God. And that is enough for him. And heritage, that is enough for us. God is the strength of our heart and our portion forever. We have no reason to ever, 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 and some more evers, envy the wicked. Because we have God. And if we have God, then we have everything. You know what? I guess that means that the only people who have a reason to envy are the wicked. Because they're looking at us and saying, truly God has been good to them. They have everything. Let's pray. God, thank you for the reorientation of your sanctuary. Thank you that we come in here, we limp in here, just so just jacked up, so messed up, so confused, so inwardly bent, and we come in and you just throw on us truth, and we confront that, and we just come out of this. We walk out. We come in confused. We walk out praising you. Thank you for the reorientation of the sanctuary. God, reorient us for your glory. In Jesus' name.